welcome to episode 50 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. For our 50th episode, we're talking about open source. The open source world is large and plentiful. It is also complex and difficult to manage, especially for a novice. Our guest this week is VM Brasur, who is the vice president of the Open Source Initiative and the author of a new book from Pragmatic called Forge Your Future with Open Source. We talk about how open source is different from free software, and then how to get started in open source, how to pick a project, how to navigate a new project to make your first submission. We also look at it from the other side and talk about how open source projects can make themselves more contributor friendly, and we talk about the state of open source in general. We also want to hear from you. What was your first open source experience like, or how do you handle new contributors on your project? Let us know at techdonewrite.io slash 50 or on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. Before we start the show, one quick message. TableXI offers training for developer and product teams. If you want me to come to your place of business and run a full day or half day workshop on testing or working with legacy code or agile team structure or career development or a couple of other things, that is a thing that we can make happen. If you would like more information on our workshops, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or find us on the web at tablexi.com slash workshops. And now here is my conversation with VM Brasur. Hey, we are here this week with VM Brasur, who also goes by Vicky in regular conversation. So Vicky, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, wonderful audience. Um, I am VM Brasur. You can call me Vicky. We're all friends here. I'm the vice president of the Open Source Initiative. I'm also a freelancer. I help companies understand, use, contribute to, and release free and open source software in a way that's very good for their bottom line strategically, but also good for the community. So I do business strategy around free and open source software. And you are also the recent author of a book called Forge Your Future with Open Source from Pragmatic Bookshelf. I loved working with the pragmatic people, folks. If I know it's great to have a cute little, uh, an amazing animal on your cover, but man, the pragmatic folks were great to work with. But yes, the book just came out <laughs> in hard copy two days ago. I, I don't know when this will air, but it's very exciting. It's my first book and gosh, this is surreal. <laughs> yeah, there's something about about getting the copies in the mail for the first time that drives it home that you did a thing for a long period of time. Yeah, I I, I refuse to believe it until I hold those copies. So I keep hitting refresh on that that UPS tab on my other browser. <laughs> oh, you haven't gotten your copies yet? No, I haven't, and it's killing me. Brian got his yesterday. Sorry, Brian is my editor, and he's an amazing human being. Yeah, I actually just happened to see Brian because uh, he was at Strange Loop, and I was just there. Oh, yes. He was at Strange Loop apologizing for them not having my book on sale, which is a, a totally different. This is not a podcast about my uh, about our book's experience, although that would be interesting. We were here to talk about Forge Your Future with Open Source, which is a book about how to contribute to open source and how open source communities work. So that's what I want to talk about here. What is the biggest thing keeping developers from the biggest misconception keeping developers from contributing to open source projects? Well, I'm I'm going to start by uh, calling out that misconception right there, which is that it's not all developers. 
uh, I mean, really, we are all developers, if, if you want to get down to that level of semantics, because it takes more than programmers to make a successful uh, software product, right? It takes designers, it takes QA, it takes support, it, it takes product management, um, it takes translators and documentarians. It takes a lot of people beyond just the programmers. So that's step one. That's that's the big thing I see with a lot of people not contributing to open source software. They think they have to be quote unquote technical, meaning they have to know how to program, but that's not the case. But for everyone, I find that a lot of folks don't contribute because they don't know where to start. That's a big problem. They don't uh, have the ability to do so through their job which is a big problem, but it is what it is because jobs pay you to do their stuff. And if their stuff doesn't include contributing to free and open source software, obviously they're not going to pay you for it. Uh, there's also a reputation with free and open source software of the communities just kind of being jerks and being very harsh on folks. And that unfortunately, while not always the case, is often the case. There are a bunch of folks out there and communities that still kind of have the attitude of, I did it the hard way, so should you. And so they don't make it very easy for people to contribute. And that's a, that's a shame because those are the projects that are going to have a very hard time scaling. Yeah, I think I find in, in my experience that a lot of people, especially people at the beginning of their careers, feel like they need to be you know the stereotypical rock star developer in order to, to be taken seriously by an open source project. You know, most of the time, I don't think that that's true. How do you think that people should deal with that, that kind of attitude or that kind of perception? Well, that's mostly a, a self-inflicted sort of thing, right? Um, if you search the literature and the conference talks, look for the phrase imposter syndrome, the I'm not good enough for this. I don't deserve this. I'm just an imposter here and everyone else is really good at this stuff. We all suffer from it, no matter how long we have been in this industry. I've been in this industry for 20 some years. I've been using uh, and contributing to free and open source software and supporting it for over 30 years. And even I still get this, right? I wrote a book on this and I still have problems sometimes contributing to open source software because I feel maybe I'm not good enough for it, but I'm wrong. And I'm okay with admitting that I'm wrong in this case, because I have learned that you don't have to be the, you know, ninja rock star sort of programmer to contribute to stuff. Just the little stuff is actually what matters more, because the little stuff is what often gets neglected. And that turns into technical debt that can really, really kind of drag down a project. So even if you can only do the little things, even if you can only contribute for two hours a week because you've got a family or you're going to school, those two hours spread across every week and every contributor really do make a massive difference. So I encourage people to just try to do baby steps are still steps. So contribute in whatever way you feel comfortable. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, which I agree with all of that, is that is that it's not even just imposter syndrome. I think even people who are fairly comfortable with their level of expertise feel like you have to be at a higher level of expertise to contribute to open source. And again, like I don't think that that's true, and I know that you don't think that that's true either. Oh, it's definitely not true. I mean, if you just look at the code itself, 
if you know how to read code, you, you look at it and you see the same mistakes made there that are made anywhere else. We're all humans and we all make mistakes and you don't have to be some amazing PhD holding sort of guru to make a difference. So you said that that people just don't know where to get started. So how do you recommend that people get started contributing to open source? So one of the most common questions I've received over the years from people is, you know, what project do I contribute to? Where can I contribute to it? And that's actually the wrong question. Actually, yeah, I want to actually even step back a little bit and talk about why contribute to open source. Right. I think that that's actually the first question people should ask, but it's not one that they're asking, let alone even answering. There are lots of really good reasons to contribute to free and open source software. It can provide a uh, a really public and copyright unencumbered portfolio for you. The things you contribute for work, be it design or code or documents or anything like that, you typically are not legally allowed to share that. So if you go into a job interview situation and they ask for job samples, you cannot provide stuff from your current job. That is copyright infringement and you can get sued for it. But with free and open source software, it's all out there in the public and in the open. And so you can use it to build an amazing portfolio. But to build a portfolio, you have to know where you're going. Your career development is your responsibility. If you're in a good company, you'll have a manager that will be taking that on to help you, to help guide you and mentor you to grow your career in the direction that makes sense for you personally. But whether your manager is helping you or not, it is still your responsibility. So you have to stop and think, where do I want to go? What do I want to do in five years? Do I want to still be doing what I am today? Do I want to be doing like black box QA or do I want to get into white box QA? And what does it take for me to get there? And then you can figure out those skills you need and learn them through contributing to free and open source software. And knowing where you want to go, that is absolutely the key to the next question after that, which is what project do I contribute to? Because you're not going to get a good project, one that's a good fit for you, if you don't know what your size is, right? What does fit you? It's it's something that a lot of people need to do a lot more thinking about, and that will make them a lot more successful, not only in their contributions, but also in their life and in their career, and they'll be much more satisfied in that way. So- Assuming that somebody has looked at, at, you know, has come up with a reason why they're trying to contribute, what do you recommend that they do? Let's say that they're trying to, uh, just to make it specific, let's say that they're trying to enhance their front-end development skills. Like, how do you recommend then that somebody look for a project to work on? I don't recommend they start with a great big names, right? It, while you can be successful with your first contribution get, being to something like Firefox or Gnome or open office or libre office or one of those, you can be successful that way. But the better way to do it is to find something that really appeals to you on a personal level. So look at your hobbies, look at your interests and search for something related to that. If you do sewing, then there are lots of projects out there, believe it or not, tons of projects related to sewing. There's Valentina, there's there's freesewing.org, right? And these all need front-end development work. If you do 
automotive work and you really like working on cars or woodworking, there are free and open source projects related to that. So you will be much more engaged if it's something that you already are interested in, but even better, you will be more successful because you already know the domain space. You already know if you're going to contribute to Valentina or freesewing.org, you already know, you know, what is a, a seam allowance or what is, is a grain line? You know the domain. And so you will in a position to better understand what needs to be done and most importantly, why. So you'll be more successful with your contributions. So sometimes you hear it recommended that people, especially like entry-level developers or people who are relatively new to open source, should start by looking at projects that need documentation and, and start trying to do documentation fixes first. Do you recommend that or uh, is that advice not particularly well thought out? I am going to try not to get on a soapbox here. Why? Go ahead. Get on a soapbox. <laughs> This is a podcast. <laughs> when I get on a soapbox, then things get a little R-rated because I swear a lot. So I'm not going to get on a soapbox. That, that's fine. We can put in we can put in an explicit tag. Nobody cares. Uh, okay. Well, I'll try not to anyway. <laughs> but um, so here's the thing, folks. Writing is hard. Really, really fucking hard. Good grief, this is difficult. If you want to write effectively for your audience, you have to know your audience. And more importantly, you need to know your material and you need to know it really, really well. So if you're going to write documentation for crying out loud, you have to have a ton of information and a lot of experience if you want to be effective at it. So no, no, this is not a good place for new people to start unless you've been using the project for a very long time and you're very familiar with it and you know the ins and outs and then yeah, yeah, that can be a good place for you to start. But no, it's not a good place if you've never used the project, if you've never contributed before. This is a terrible idea. Stop telling people to write docs as a first contribution. It's very complicated. Yes, it works for some people, but it doesn't for most, and it especially doesn't work for most projects. So stop it. Noted. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I have some feels on that subject. <laughs> that, that, hey, I'm here to find out what your feelings are. Like that's that's what we're here for. Documentation is a bad idea. So what should people look for? Let's say I found a project. It's it's not tiny. There's a little bit of a contributor core. You know, it's not a one per, not a one person show. All right, what should I look for to get started? Well, what do you want to do? Uh, that's that's kind of the question, right? I mean, the answer to all of these is going to be, it depends, right? So check the contributor guide, see what sort of contributions a project even wants. It could be they don't need something of your skill set. For instance, if you're looking to do information security or infosec or something like that, this is a project that might not need that very much. Although I can't imagine a project that doesn't need some sort of infosec, but that's just my bias. So check their contributor guide, see what sort of stuff they're looking for. Then look at their issue tracker and look for the open issues. What sort of things do people need? Are they looking for? If this is a project that you yourself use, then what feature, what bug, what change would you personally like to see in, in that particular project? And then write up an issue and talk to the project about it and make sure that it's something that they want to have because your needs do not necessarily match the project needs. So the issue tracker is going to be your friend. 
Yeah, I think if you're going to add something to a project, it's definitely a good idea. The, the open source maintainers that I've talked to definitely encourage people to talk to them before they spend a lot of time making a new feature or, or adding something that's not already on the issue tracker, just to save everybody's time. Yeah, it really does save everyone a ton of time to do that. Just because you have poured your blood, sweat, and tears into a feature doesn't mean that it's something that someone wants. So check with them first. And also, I would recommend you start small because small things are uh, more likely to get accepted. And then you get that little endorphin buzz of, wow, I landed my first patch. And that's really motivating and really encouraging. And that's something that I do encourage people to do is start small, right? Keep it simple. And then you can always scale up later. I'm pretty sure my first open source patch was a bug fix to the Java driver for Postgres in like 2003 or something like that. It was very small. It was uh, something that had probably gone unnoticed because it affected nobody. But yeah, you get that, you, you know, it's a one line fix, but you do get that rush of having actually contributed to something that will go out into the world. Yeah, I think that we don't put enough emphasis on that personal, emotional hit that we get when things are accepted, because that's very important that we focus on what we get out of contributing to free and open source software. It's, I strongly support people doing it for altruistic reasons, but we're human beings, we have needs. If we can do something and contribute to a community and then also meet our own needs in the process, that's great. That's a win-win for everyone. Are you familiar with a website called CodeTriage.com? I do not know of CodeTriage.com. You are the very first person to mention it to me, but I'm writing it down now. CodeTriage is actually a service that lets you like sub subscribe to a bunch of repos that are triaging their issues, and it will send you like an open issue in one of those repos to work on every day. And I sometimes recommend that to people as, as at least to look at as a way to get started because I, I think that the, the projects are triaging things as potentially being relatively small fixes. And so, yeah, so that's another, another place to look uh, if you just want to start working on a larger project and seeing how that works out. I do have a section in the book about uh, triaging. Uh, there's an entire chapter about how to contribute without doing a commit Right. So you don't necessarily have to do a pull request to make these types of contribution. And code triage is one of them. Uh, and there are a lot of projects that welcome new contributors looking at their issue tracker. And as new things come in, just, you know, trying to duplicate it, confirming it's a problem, you know, asking questions of the original uh, reporter and doing that very, very important legwork of the issue maintenance. But there are also a lot of projects that do not want new contributors doing that because they don't feel a new contributor will have the background and experience to accurately or efficiently triage a bug or an issue that comes in. So before you dive in and spend a lot of time on code triage, do check with someone to make sure it's something that that particular project does welcome. Yeah, I think in the case of this particular tool, all the projects that are a part of it have actively signed up for it. So that can be a place to find you know, projects that are looking for that kind of work. But yeah, that, that's a great point. For this particular tool, it, it's, I, I haven't looked at it because obviously I just learned about it. But <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether it would be a good place to start yet because every time you have to triage a bug, you have to set up that particular 
issue, right? You have to set up that particular project on whatever developer environment or just install it on a VM somewhere. Not me, not this VM, but um, a virtual machine somewhere. And that can take a great deal of time to do. So if you're constantly doing this for completely different projects, you can get a lot of experience with installing software, I guess, but it can be a, a large investment in your time just to even get to the point where you can triage an issue. So for some people that might work well and might be something they want, but for others do be careful because time is the one thing that once you spend it, you never get it back. So try to be careful and just aware of where you are spending your time and make sure it's in a good way for you. What sort of advice do you give to people as they start dealing with the communities of the open source project that they've started to contribute to as they're starting to make pull requests or comment on pull requests? Like, Do you have advice for people as they navigate that process for the first time? Uh, leave your ego at the door. This is not about you. This is about your contribution and you are not your contribution. So try very hard not to take things personally. There is a lot of successful free and open source software communities communicate a lot and so you should be aware of that and be prepared to communicate a lot. And if you expect them to be responding to your pull request very quickly, you similarly have to be prepared to respond to their questions and their feedback very quickly. I think a lot of people are surprised when they start getting feedback on their first pull request and feel a little overwhelmed by it. Feedback is a gift, uh, full stop. It's a gift. It helps you get better. But we as human beings, particularly in Western cultures, uh, although I'm starting to read some psychological papers that it, this is really a worldwide thing, uh, non-Western cultures have uh, similar issues, but in a different sort of way. Um, we take feedback personally, and we've just sort of built this culture over the many millennia of our world to, uh, we think it's a criticism on us. And that's partly because a lot of the people who are giving this feedback don't know how to make it not personal. So they'll say things like, this is a stupid way to do that, which is not right. That's kind of making it personal. That's an ad hominem attack. So you have to be prepared yourself to recognize that saying it's stupid doesn't mean that you're stupid. It's just that this person needs to learn how to better communicate. I don't recommend you point that out to them. They won't appreciate it. <laughs> they will in turn get defensive. They will, and that doesn't go well. But be aware that it isn't personal. Even when it sounds like it's personal, it isn't. And if you get to a point where someone is definitely being a big jerk face about giving feedback, then you know what? Peace out. Just get the heck out of that project and go to another one that will treat you with the respect that you deserve. Uh, I know you talk about this a couple of times in the book, but how do you feel about codes of conduct in terms of projects? This has been a, a pretty hot topic in the open source community over the last, especially the last couple of months, but over the last couple of years. Codes of conduct are absolutely required for me. I won't participate in, in projects. I won't participate in conferences that do not have codes of conduct. But it's just kind of step one, right? That's a document. It doesn't really matter if you don't know how to enforce it properly. And that's the next step that I think a lot of projects need to get onto is to learn how to handle this with discretion and with empathy. Because the one thing that we all need to learn is that a lot of these people who violate a code of conduct Nobody's bothered to tell them in the past that their behavior is not acceptable or even more importantly, why. So it's not a matter of malice. More often, it's a matter of ignorance. 
Uh, so having a team that can effectively coach people and teach them that, no, you can't say that, or no, you can't hug someone when they don't want to. And here's why. Having a team that can do that can really help to build a very strong and safe environment where everyone can participate. And that's what we need in free and open source software because we have millions and millions of new projects that come out every single year. The State of the Octaverse, GitHub State of the Octaverse research that comes out every year shows that just on GitHub alone, there are millions of repositories out there. Um, Not all of them are free and open source software, but even if just a quarter of them are, that's still probably like 4 million every year. So how are we going to maintain these? Who's going to do that? We need a lot more contributors, but we're not going to get those contributors if we in the existing projects are real assholes and we force them away. So that's something that I think a code of conduct can help raise awareness and act as kind of guardrails to start to coach people on how to behave with others. How do you think this is a sort of a, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but but you've been involved in the open source, the free and open source world for a long time. Um, you know, so have I. Uh, how do you think that it's changed over the last I don't know fifteen or twenty years, like as it has become more prevalent and much more common. How do you think that that's changed the communities? Well, I think that over the past several years, I mean, let's just go for 20 because the term open source and the open source initiative, they're they're 20 years old this very year. So this is our 20th anniversary. Yeah, it's a funny coincidence because we just did a podcast with myself and a couple of longtime Ruby community members, all of whom also started our professional careers exactly 20 years ago. So- that's a good time frame for us. Well, happy anniversary to you guys too. That's great. Yeah, t- a little over 20 years for me too. So, um, you know, in the past 20 years, when this all started 20 years ago, the people who knew about open source software understood what it was, right? They came to it through free software, which evolved into open source software. And so they knew what it was and they knew what it meant and they knew what it meant to be open source. But then as the movement grew and evolved and scaled, there were a lot more people in there who understood that there was open source and that, you know, that meant you could get to the source code, but they didn't understand the rest around that. They didn't understand the meaning of what it actually is to be open source. And frankly, folks, there's a definition. It's written down exactly what it means to be open source. It's the open source definition. It's maintained by the open source initiative. And it's a worldwide accepted definition. And that's very, very useful because the term open source means the same thing to everyone if they know about the definition. And I think that what we've lost track of is that that uh, recognition of what open source really is and what it means. And I think we, the open source initiative, one of the things we need to do in the next few years is help to correct that error and help to educate people about what open source really does mean and the freedoms that it ensures for people, because then we can all be working under the exact same terminology again. And that's important because otherwise, if what I say is open source doesn't match what you say is open source, we're not going to be able to collaborate very well. And that's going to kill the movement. And we can't allow that to happen. 
Yeah, I think from my perspective, you know, the, the acceptance of being able to use open source in a business environment has obviously changed tremendously. And I think I said this uh, a couple weeks ago on the show, but in my first web job, I was, you know, trying to talk my company into using Python and they were concerned because they wouldn't know who to sue if something went wrong. Like they had that that level of like not understanding and concern about using it. And I think you're right though that over time like as it has become more accepted, the business interface with it is just like, oh, this means we don't have to pay for it. And that's great, which loses so much of why open source exists and how it continues to thrive, I think. I, well, I mean, obviously this is what I do for a living, right? Is I help companies understand that and I help them do it in such a way that they can still make a decent profit while also being good citizens, but you can't be a good citizen until you know what that even is, right? So that's something that I think that we within free and open source software, all of us who contribute and use, we can do a better job of that. We've been really super successful in backdooring open source projects into our companies. And that's why it's as successful as it is today, because we're just like, okay, I need to solve this problem. Great. There's a project. I'm just going to install it and use it. And they'll figure it out later, maybe. But usually what I find is that companies don't know exactly how much free and open source software they're using. They haven't done that audit. But we've done a good job of getting it into the company. But we completely forgot to explain why. What are the meanings behind this? And why is this important? And how can we contribute? Why is it important for the company to contribute? So this is what I do with companies, aside from helping them with their business strategies around open source software, I also help them to understand it. But I think we all need to, we need to learn how to speak business speak, frankly. I mean, for companies, they are now finally figuring out that free and open source software is a very important thing in their, to their companies. And it's, it's very, uh, it, it underpins their entire products sometimes. And they're finally starting to realize this, but they don't know what open source software is. I have an, an article and in, in a talk that speaks directly to business people saying, look, you know what an emerging market is. You know that if you go into a new market where you don't know the people yet, that you have to learn how to do that. You have to learn how to speak their language. You have to understand their culture if you want your product to be successful. And free and open source software for companies, that is essentially an emerging market. It is a completely different culture. It's a completely different language. And they have to learn how to understand that if they want to be successful. But the people within that emerging market, they also they don't have to just sit back and wait for the companies to do all the work. If you want your company to understand, if you want your company to contribute, you have to learn their language as well. So you can tell them how it's good for their bottom line to contribute to this particular project, to release something that they don't really uh, get any money out of internally. It's just, say, a library or a utility. They're not making money off of that, but it can be useful to others. And here's how it's good for the bottom line for the company to do that. You know, so learn that sort of perspective of the company, and you're more likely to get them to participate in a way that we all need. Yeah, I've been fairly lucky in my career that most of my time has been spent at companies that were small enough and close enough to the open source community that it's been a while since I've had to make that argument sort of explicitly. But I know that there are places 
uh, where that argument still has to be made. Although, you know, you see places like Microsoft jumping into the open source world with an abandon that, that would have like astonished me, you know, 10 years ago. So progress, I guess, is being made. Yeah, Microsoft has had just this incredible evolution over the past few years. I, like the first time I saw Microsoft at a free and open source conference, I believe it was OzCon, but they had a booth on the expo floor and, you know, eyebrows went up and everyone was like, what even is going on here? Uh, why are you here? Who let you into this building? Right. Um, is this just a dunk tank? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right. It's like, if it wasn't before, it is now. Um, so there was really that th they dug themselves a great big hole, right? With the Halloween memos back like 20 some years ago now, but they filled that hole in. They started slowly and then they just gained a lot of momentum in it because they figured out how important it is to their company to embrace free and open source software. I mean, there's, what is it? Over half of the Azure instances are running Linux. And they know that. And if they want people to use Azure, they have to go where the people are. And if the people want Linux, great. We want to sell Azure. We're going to support Linux. And that benefits everyone. That benefits the open source communities that they're using, but it also benefits their customers and it benefits Microsoft. And so they figured that out, that they were just being bigots, holding free and open source software at arm's length, and that they were kind of shooting themselves in the foot for that. And they stopped and they took a look at it and they're like, no, we were wrong. And man, it takes a lot of courage to admit you were wrong, especially when you are a multi, multi-billion dollar company. So I strongly support Microsoft in everything it's doing now. It's, there's still a long way to go, but damn, they've come a long way already. And it's been amazing to watch. Right. And and with the GitHub purchase, they've arguably become one of the major stewards of uh, the open source process. They have. I mean, obviously there are options, right? You can go to GitLab, uh, which is great. I, I love GitLab. They're really good people. They do good work. And they're now a unicorn. So congrats <laughs> on that, GitLab. But they knew what they were getting into when they bought GitHub. They knew exactly what they were doing. And it made it they knew what it would mean for free and open source software to have Microsoft's name tied so closely to it. They were ready for that and they knew there would be some blowback, but they're doing the right thing, I think, both for GitHub and Microsoft and for the open source communities. And frankly, the people who are complaining that uh, Microsoft purchased GitHub and, oh my gosh, it's all closed now. Honey, please, GitHub has always been a closed source project. So uh, that's, that's always been proprietary. So you can't really, you can't play that card. Yeah, although interestingly enough, GitHub is starting to pull upstream some of their stuff into, specifically into Rails. They, they just in the last, they've just started, they just, um, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but they just did a major upgrade to the current version of Rails and they're pushing some of their, libraries into Rails as part of that, as a sideline to that, which I think is great. Yeah, it's great. I, they had a really great blog post about that recently, which, I mean, they did such amazing work, but even better, they're now, I believe, testing the bleeding out edge of Rails multiple times a day. And it's incredible what they are, have done to start to really engage with the Rails community on this. And I don't think enough people understand that all of GitHub is built on, on Ruby and Rails. And 
that's a huge feather in the cap of Rails. Good on you, Ruby. <laughs> so uh, a lot of that work is from uh, Eileen Yushitel, who is a core Rails committer and works at GitHub and was a guest on this podcast we'll put uh, talking about uh, Rails as an open source project. So all right, what do you want to, what what do you want to talk about before we finish? I suspect uh, that you might have uh, something that you have feelings about that you want to cover before we Oh, I got nothing but feels on all sorts of subjects. To be honest though, my entire like emotional being has been wrapped up with the book release in the past week or so, um, which has been very distracting for me. It's been very difficult to kind of look at anything else besides that. I would like to, to for those of you who are in the Pacific Northwest, I'd like to invite you all to join us at Siegel, Seattle GNU Linux Conference on November 9th and 10th up in Seattle at uh, Seattle Central College. Uh, yeah, it's a free to attend conference on free software and open source. The schedule's up. We have amazing keynoters. We have excellent speakers this year. I am the program chair, so I'm biased on that front. But it's a really great community and a great conference, about 400 or so people. Again, free to attend. We This year we have free childcare, free lunch, really amazing sponsors. So join us. It's a really good conference. All right. One question I want to ask before we before we finish up, though, is, is what if I am the maintainer of a project, a growing uh, open source project, what are some things that I can do to make my project more uh, welcoming to uh, new contributors? Document, 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 document. Write everything down for crying out loud because the f- third time you have to answer the exact same question, you're going to start to get irritated at your no- new contributors. And that's not their fault because they don't know how many times you've had to answer that question. So make it easy for them, right? So write everything down. Yeah, it can take time, but if you just do a first draft, then you can ask your people to, as they start contributing, they can then iterate on those documents. Oh, I found that I need to do this in the install or you prefer that in the issue tracker. So, But just at least do a first pass of your documentation for new contributors and anything that you think you have some feels on, say if you prefer for some crazy reason, tabs over spaces, write that down, tell them up front, <laughs> right? So do that, make it easier for people to find the answers themselves rather than bothering you to get them. Thank you for being on the show. Congratulations on the book release. That's that's a big deal, and hopefully you are able to enjoy it. Where can people reach you online if they want to talk to you more about open source and how to contribute? They can reach me. There is an IRC channel just for the book. It's on Freenode IRC. It is FOSSFORGE, F-O-S-S-F-O-R-G-E. So there is an IRC channel if you just want to join the community and talk about contributing. You can also find me at my website, vmbrasor.com. But really the best way to get in touch with me right now is Twitter, at vmbrasor on Twitter. I may tweet a lot. I do have some feels on a lot of things and I tend to share them. Thank you very much for being on the show. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Noel. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI, which you can find on Twitter at TableXI, and is hosted by me, Noel Rappman. I am at Noel Rapp on Twitter. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore, who is at the Ruby Rep on Twitter. Tech Done Right can be found at TechDoneRight.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. And of course, if you like the show, tell a friend, a colleague, a relative, your social media network, tell me, tell my boss. Those would all be very, very helpful. And if you'd like to add a review on Apple Podcasts, that would help people find the show. 
TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done 